just like new. <sighs> I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode. Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Two episodes in the same week. I have not done that in a long time. I hope y'all are having yet another great week. I'm currently clearing out the backlog of episodes, so this episode was also recorded last June. And before moving forward, I wanted to share a really big update. I'm coming back to the States at the end of 2023, and I'm working on building a book club that's primarily focused on education, where we choose a book every month and we meet twice to discuss its philosophies, themes, and ideas. I'm excited to bring people who think deeply about education from around the world to give a different perspective on what education can be. I think often when we, either in our spaces at the university or in our work, we end up meeting people who are very similar to us. So we don't get a kind of different perspective on some of these deep educational problems. And so if you're interested in either joining or following along on the journey, Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and send me an email at gy118 at georgetown.edu. And so with that out the way, today's guest is Dr. Richard Stevens, a professor of psychology at Keele University in England. He has extensively researched the impacts of alcohol and emotional language. Today's episode is the second half of our series on swearing. Our first episode covered the linguistic aspect of swearing with Dr. Christy Beers Fagistan. I would recommend checking that out first. And today we further that discussion by looking at the psychological impacts of swearing. We delve into Dr. Stevens' research on the benefits of swearing for pain tolerance and for performing physical tasks. We then discuss the methodologies to understanding and teaching the complexities of swearing. I wanted to start this episode by understanding Dr. Stevens' interest in the field of psychology and swaying. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here you go. My introduction to cursing was from everyday experience, seeing, you know, just just kind of curiosity with it. Isn't this a kind of a strange thing that people have this form of language? And then it kind of came to a head with a couple of incidents in which I injured myself with a hammer and noticed that I swore in response to that. I've repeated the swear word a few times. And then when our daughter was born, uh, my wife swore a fair bit during the labor. As the labor went on, it was about an 18 hour labor. It was very long wow. as, it, as the contractions were getting more intense. Further into it, uh, she was swearing. Uh, and as the contractions eased off, she was getting a bit embarrassed about having just been swearing in this room in the hospital as more and more medical staff were coming in um and interestingly one of the midwives said don't be embarrassed this is a completely normal part of giving birth swearing so so yeah so uh you know i I just kind of noticed that association and then i'm lucky enough to have a job where i can you know be curious about things like that and try to look for answers and I was amazed to find there was nothing out there at all in the literature about why people swear when they're in pain. And that became something I worked on for a few years. Wow. And so, you know, even the last conversation that we had with Christy, who was an amazing guest, 
is we want, I wanted to first start with clearly defining what a curse word is. So when you use that, what do you mean by a curse word? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. Swearing is quite a difficult thing to pin down. And yet everybody knows what we mean by swearing. So there are, um, there was a survey of, I think it was a UK survey of swearing on TV and, and audience attitudes to swearing. And while something like 90% of the people agreed that fuck was, a, was one of the stronger swear words, 10% said fuck was not was mild slash not swearing. So it's uh it, yeah it, it, it's a strange phenomenon to pin down but for me swearing is the use of those four letter words that we that we know are swear words you know that that list of words that we know we shouldn't say that's that's how I think of swearing. Hmm. Well, I mean I never even actually realized a lot of them are four words four letters. Is there a reason for that? Uh, I honestly, you know, honestly don't know. It's, it's a kind of an English thing to call them the four letter words. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a psychologist rather than a linguist. So, um, yeah. I, I'd be, I'm interested in the effect that swearing has on people, particularly beneficial effects. So mm. you'd have to probably speak to a linguist about why they have that format. Hmm. And so, I mean, I think the example that you gave of your wife was an excellent one because it is in those moments of pain or anger in which a lot of times people do curse. And so what is the impact cursing has on the brain? Uh, so there is some evidence that um, swearing is handled by different parts of the brain that regularly handle language. There are cases of individuals who have um, very much impoverished language due to damage to the traditional language. The, the language areas of the brain are usually in the cortex, that's towards the surface of the brain, and on the left side of the cortex in a couple of areas called Broca's area and Wernicke's area. And there are cases of people with uh, brain damage to those regions who have impoverished language and yet can swear fluently along with other kinds of stereotypical language, for example, singing a, a well-learned song. So there is evidence that, that swearing is a slightly different, um, different part of language in terms of how it's handled by the brain. There's also evidence around uh, Tourette syndrome. So about 50% of Tourette's sufferers have coprolalia, which is the swearing tick that most people associate with it. Uh, there is evidence that people with Tourette's have um some uh changes to the brain in deep lying brain areas so rather again that surface part of the brain the cortex where a lot of our brain power comes from where a lot of processing is done um damage to a part of the brain called basal ganglia um is linked to Tourette. so there's so there's a few different strands of evidence linking swearing a form of language to non-linguistic areas of the brain which is quite interesting Hmm. So I'm curious about this Tourette's example you gave, because it feels as if there is this understanding of what words aren't supposed to be said, and then there is a link to that. And so if this, the four-letter words, as you mentioned it, let's say those weren't the ones that we considered as words that you were not supposed to say, 
Is it a connection to the word itself, or is it to the feeling that you're not supposed to say it? Therefore, this tick is making me say the word. That's a really good question. I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't answer that question.、Um, yeah. Hmm. Fair. And so, I mean, because I do think that's like what cursing is. Because I'm trying to understand whether when we define a curse word, is it a group of words where there is a certain reaction from the communities that we're in, or is it like something about the word itself or the meaning of the word itself? I think maybe it's both. I think maybe it's both because. I mean, there are there are polite ways of talking about the things that swear words mean semantically. So, you know, if I needed to have a conversation with someone about sexual intercourse, I could do that on a level, and that would be fine. Whereas, if I wanted to talk about fucking, that's a diff that that changes the the context and changes what's going on. But there's no doubt that the the words themselves have become swear words because they deal with topics that are or have been taboo. In society,、mm. or on the fringes of of acceptability, so I think I think it's a little bit of both, really.、Um, but it's also a kind of a social contract. It's it's we know we all know those words are the words in that category, and when you say one, this is something that Christie says. When you deliver one of those words, you never quite know how it's going to land, and maybe that's what helps keep it sort of.、Um, Tension with a bit of tension or a little bit of power.、Mm. And so, when you're doing this research on curse words, what, what does it look like? I mean, in my head, it's like you have electrodes on someone's brain and then you make them say the curse word. I mean, what is it? How does how does the research into this look like from the psychology yeah, we, perspective? We we've been doing that recently, literally that recently. So,、uh, my research today, I've been researching swearing for. Fifteen years, maybe sixteen,、wow. seventeen years. So I'm an experimental psychologist. So what I like to do is set up situations where we can see how a person behaves, and then and and measure that behaviour, and then from those measurements infer things about you know、yeah. the the thing of interest, the swearing, and 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 what and the effect it's happening. So some of my research has been on pain, and that research involves. Um, we've used ice cold water as a pain stimulus. This is great for research because it's painful but not harmful, so we can get people to experience pain in the laboratory ethically.、Uh, and then we get them to repeat a swear word of their choice or a neutral word of their choice, and we see how long they keep their hand in the ice cold water for, and we measure that, and that's our behavioural measure of the influence of swearing on pain tolerance. Put very simply. We've extended that to look at swearing and physical strength, and it's again a similar sort of thing. We've we've got a device called a hand dynamometer, which is a kind of a thing, like a metal thing that you hold and you grip. And the stronger you grip it, the more a little needle goes round on the dial, registering the amount of force you're applying in kilograms.、Uh, we've done studies where people will do that task, either repeating a swear word of their choice or a neutral word, and we've shown that people will. Uh, grip with more、uh, with more force, and as we moved into lockdown and we had to find a way of conducting these studies online, we switched to、uh, a physical strength task, which anyone can do wherever they are, where they're sitting now.、Uh, you could try now if you want. So get your hands, place your hands under your thighs, and then raise yourself up, raise your feet off the floor, raise your bottom off the seat, and then、mm. let's see how long you can hold that position for. And we get people to do that. 
repeating a swear word, repeating a neutral word, and people will hold that um, position for longer. Longer. You know, it, it's it's as I often say, it's simple science. It's quite easy to get your head around, but it's it, it's it's experimental, um, and we've got a behavioural measure of one of the key variables we're interested in. You mentioned about um, electrodes. A more recent study that's been conducted in the last uh, over the last six to twelve months. There's uh, so you, we can measure brain electrical activity uh, called with a thing called the electroencephalogram or EEG, and um, we've been interested in how swearing has its beneficial effects. How does swearing help us tolerate pain more? How does it help us be stronger? And the leading hypothesis at the moment is disinhibition. Swearing makes you disinhibited in the moment, and when you're disinhibited, you go for it more, you don't hold back, and that accounts for the uh, the extra performance. Now, there is very interestingly, there is an EEG signature of disinhibition called error-related negativity, which is basically you're doing a task, you make a mistake, in an EEG, you can detect a little deflection of the EEG wave, which is the response to the mistake. And with state disinhibition, we expect to see a smaller uh, response to mistakes. So we don't know the answers yet. Mm. That data is um, is is being analysed and the numbers being crunched, but it's uh, it's exciting stuff. So, you know, one thing I'm curious about is, so we were talking earlier and in that Tourette's example about how the concept of a swear word can be in relation to the culture around the word or the concept itself and whether it is taboo. And so one thing I'm curious about in all of this research is, let's say, for example, you're in a room where you're asked to repeat a swear word. To me, it feels like you're actually removing that tabooness of the word completely. And so it no longer is really a swear word, even though the, the, the sound is. Is there something to that? Suppose, yeah. So going back to that idea about you're never quite sure how a swear word is going to land. I guess if somebody asks you to repeat a swear word, you do have a fair bet that the landing of the swear word is going to be okay. But I suppose you're not 100% sure. So it's still, there is still an element of okay, if that person over there has asked me to repeat a swear word, probably fine. So I, I do tell you what you say, um, but then that that is the problem of how do you how do you conduct research? Yeah. You know, it's one of the, it's it's a, it becomes a, a a research question. How do you operationalize the thing you're interested in within some parameters that are going to enable you to take measurements? You know, control. You know you know you could try to look at swearing in a more naturalistic setting absolutely but you know but what would that look like and and would you still have enough control over it to take measurements that you could then you know use to be meaningful so you know research is full of compromise it's all about doing the best you can to try to you know to try to answer the research question you've got great question mm. actually yeah and 
Because, you know, one thing that I'm really interested in is, and I think this is the the issue that comes up with a lot of research, especially psychology research. It's that you want your participant to not fully be aware of what it is that you're studying, because then they'll probably alter their behavior a little bit to either align or to misalign with what, what it is that you really want to study. Do you, yeah, do you face that, that often? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a classic dilemma in psychology. You know, Psychology 101 is, you know, that's one of the things you have to try to think about. Um, we, I mean, you know, it waxes and wanes. The popularity of the research I do waxes and wanes. There have probably been times when we've run studies and people haven't got a clue what we're, what the research question is. There's probably been times when we run studies when people have had a pretty good idea what we're looking at because, you know, they've heard about the research um, from other from other places. Um, a really good suggestion recently, it's quite obvious, really, is to ask people what they think the research was about before they leave. Uh, and that's mm. something we're just starting to include. Um, but I don't have anything to report back on on how that's going. But that that's kind of a nice way to get a bit of a handle on that. Um, mm. Yeah. So I'm curious about this. I mean, and I think the impact is probably both ways. But so let's say I, f I feel a particular f strong feeling. And because of that, I stub my toe, I feel the need to curse. But then there's also other situations where my language can sometimes elicit certain feelings. And so in which direction is that relationship happening more? Is it that your brain first feels some sort of feeling and then that's what motivates all language? Or is it that language comes first and then based on what you say, it elicits some emotion? Okay, so that is a really deep philosophical question. Um, so, you know, uh, the idea of war, the Wolfian hypothesis, you know, does 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 language reflect thought or does language make thought, so to speak? You know, which, which direction do these things go? It's almost getting to that uh, sort of a level, I think. Um, I, I mean... I'll give you an example from my research, which shows a little bit of bi-directionality, bi if you like. So uh, so in the early studies we did, swearing helps you cope with pain. Swearing also um, showed evidence of increased heart rate, which suggested swearing was, by swearing in pain, you're provoking a stress reaction in yourself. And part of the stress reaction, part of fight or flight, um, is an element called stress-induced analgesia. So by swearing, you're making yourself stressed and then benefiting from that stress because it enables you to cope with pain. We also tested that the other way around by saying, okay, swearing makes you a little bit stressed. Other people have shown this as well. Other people have done studies in other labs measuring things like skin conductance, uh, different heart rate variables showing that swearing, if you ask people to swear, it will produce a stress response. We decided to look at the other way around. What happens if you stress people out? How does that influence their use of language and mm. swearing? Um, and so there's a really cool task. I didn't invent it. I wish I had. But a guy called uh, Professor Timothy Jay, who you may have come across over in uh, Massachusetts. What's it? Uh, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, I think it's called. Um, he's been researching swearing for several decades. Really nice guy as well. So there's a there's a um, a task, kind of a language based task that can be used to measure intelligence. Can also be used to measure 
um, verbal fluency. How many letters, how many words, sorry, can you think of in a minute beginning with a letter of the alphabet, let's say the letter A, okay? And it's a really well used kind of psychometric test. And as I say, it correlates with intelligence uh, and other things. Well, Timothy Jay came up with the swearing version of that task. How many swear words can you think of in a minute? And interestingly, there's <laughs> the correlation. There's a, the correlation between the swearing version and the regular version is a positive correlation. Wow. So the people who've got the best language skills generally have the largest vocabulary of swear words, which is which is quite an interesting thing. But aside from that, in our study, we got people to um, experience emotion by playing uh, a shoot 'em up video game. We put them into you know god mode so they couldn't get wiped out themselves and they spent 10 minutes walking around a place shooting enemies the control condition was a golf video game so still a video game but not quite as involving not quite as emotional and uh, we verified that people felt more uh, aggressive more hostile in the moment after the game so it it certainly seemed to have evoked an emotion then we gave them the uh the swearing fluency task and we found that people became more fluent in that emotionally aroused state wow so so to assert so to answer go back to your question i think there's a certain bi-directionality to which a context influences swearing or in which swearing influences a context i think it goes both ways hmm and so, I mean, it's so fascinating to see, you know, many people devote their lives to research in swearing. And so one thing I'm really curious about, particularly for you, is what, where do you see, where does the impact of kind of this research in swearing, what, is it more about the impact of language on the brain or is there a more specific niche use case of the research into swearing? Uh, personally, I think it's more applied. I think I think um, I think the impact is more applied. So um, you know, I get I give talks entitled "Swearing." What's the, what, let me get this right? Swearing a uh, 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 low calorie, um, drug free, a couple of things. It, it, it's it, swearing is an intervention that costs has zero cost mm. and and can be helpful in the moment and you know uh it, and you know this this is it's not like i'm just saying this and nobody agrees with me everybody knows this because everybody swears everybody everybody knows how to use these these this this aspect of language you know you know you know you know when you stub your toe you swear it it, it probably helps but understanding that you know it, it, it understanding that is going to help us to understand more about you know how it works understands more about psychology and so on i also think there's a secondary benefit though which is uh as a vehicle to get people interested in science so you know before i got into this i did science for probably a decade and wrote papers that probably hardly anyone read you know i i this gets a huge audience and if i can reach an audience and talk to them about psychological science and how science works and what scientists do i think there's benefit in that uh because i think the more people are aware of science and understand science and understand how scientists think i think that has great promise to make the world a better place
Wow, that's a that's a good one. I think you know I think about math as well a lot of times. Um, I studied math in undergrad, but had a tumultuous relationship with it until then. And in the same way, I feel like statistics can be a really good gateway into the other math subjects where it's a lot more applied, it's a lot more useful. I think what you just said about using cursing as a way to kind of start having people think about, you know, how would you study this? What, what does it mean? It's a great one to kind of get. I mean, even the one that you said, just list all the swear words you can would be such a fun experiment for a lot of people. But what they're doing is science. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great um, idea. And so, you know, what I'm really curious about is I mean, this podcast is on education. And something that I'm really interested in is how we actually go about teaching students about what you can say in the classroom, what you can't say, why and why not. And so in all of the research that you've done, I'm curious how you go about it in your own uh, classroom, in your own house. What what are your own policies about swearing? Uh, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, I mostly teach adults. So, you know, um, that probably makes it easier. Uh you know, you sort of read the room really. Um, my, my policy is, I think, um, I will use swear words in the classroom when it's, you know, not gratuitously, but when I'm talking about swearing, I'll, I will use swear words in a talk. Um, I've talked about swearing to kids as well. And then I will, you know, use expressions like the F word. I, I, I wouldn't swear in front of kids. Uh, it doesn't sit right with me in one sense. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I want to keep people on board. I don't want to upset people. Um, you know, it is interesting as well, because I, I, my policy is to kind of study the upside of swearing as well. I'm studying the benefits of swearing. I'm not, I'm not going into the huge negative aspects of swearing, the sort of the, you know, using it to bully people, to troll people, to upset people. Um, and that's the, that's the danger, isn't it? Is, is, um, you broach the topic of swearing in the classroom and then does that give the student's license to use it, use it against you and so on. All I can say is the experience I've had of using, of talking about swearing have been positive and the people I speak to about swearing kind of enjoyed the novelty of talking about a subject like this in a, in a formal setting. And, and moreover, there's just huge interest in swearing. Every, everyone's got a story about swearing and everybody's interested in swearing. So the, the vibe really is one of oh this this is going to be interesting let's 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 see what he's got to say so uh so yeah i don't know if i've answered your question but i've certainly rambled on for a little bit <laughs> no 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 i mean it is interesting because i think what you said there is even if we talk about the positives of swearing there is this still kind of layer of like oh but i don't want to say it in front of children right and i think that's the part that makes it so interesting it's it's why like what is it about these words that have so much power that we don't want to utter it in front of kids. And and for some reason, we have created kids as some, uh, you know, we were talking about on the last episode of how there's kind of this process of going from adolescent into adulthood where it's like you get to start cursing. There's this whole like kind of tradition of where you, there's a certain age where you can now start using some words versus other words. And it's just fascinating how that is such a huge part of not just this culture, but many different cultures. And so how do we approach that if there are a lot of these positive benefits, but we still kind of have this underlying like, okay, but you still shouldn't say it. Yeah. I mean, 
there is that sort of paradox at the heart of swearing, isn't it? Is you know, it's a language you're not supposed to use, but everyone uses it, uh, and and it has uses. And and if the paradox were to be eliminated, then surely the benefits would go too. I would I would have expected. Um, so yeah, that that's a kind of a that's a kind of a. I think I yeah, just you just accept the paradox. I think that's, that's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it is what it is. Um, you know, language evolves all the time. We do seem to be in a in a place where the four letter words are. You know, if a kid did use a four letter word, it would it wouldn't really matter that much. I suspect maybe when I was a kid, it would have mattered more. I think you know they were less visible around the place. I would say they were less printed. Um, but I think all that really means is, you know, language constantly evolves. And if we all get, if we all get happy with the four lesser words, I think they would stop having the same power. And then what will happen is we'll invent some more words yeah. to take their place. Have you, have you, is that a part of your research checking across age groups? Not really. No, not really. Um, no, um, no, not at all. Hmm. That would uh, that would be interesting as well to see if there are differences, uh, which I would assume there would be. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think there might be some data out there on this, actually. Uh, yeah. Um, a guy called Tony McHenry, who's our keynote speaker, he's, been, he's, he's a kind of a linguist at Lancaster University. He's been researching swearing for... A good couple of decades as well and they had a really interesting study now i'm not going to answer your question because i can't remember the details but they did a study um uh they tracked the word foot in the british national corpus now a corpus is a resource that linguists use it's a huge library of written examples of language in different contexts magazines newspapers books whatever wherever writing is used it also can use um spoken word and and you know tv and video as well anyway they tracked the word fuck across these um across the british national corpus and they were able to uh look at trends like demographic trends and i'm sure they must have looked at age but i that isn't to hand. I can always look it up and um, get back to you afterwards if you're interested. But um, the really interesting one that sticks out in my mind is social class, because mm. as you might expect, swearing is very prolific at the lower social classes and reduces as you move up the social class pyramid, if you like, through, you know, working class, upper working class, middle class. But then when it got to upper class, it exploded again. It's mm. like the middle classes are managing their image because they had to, to climb the social ladder, if you like, whereas the upper class people didn't need to. And so it, it, it kind of mushroomed. So I'm pretty sure they'll have age data. I guess that's of use rather than of um, response. But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, interesting question. Yeah, and... Are you expecting there to be a lot of swearing at the conference? Huh. Uh, yes, in in so much as there'll be swear words in the talks. I mean, there won't be <laughs> casual swearing. You know, it, 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 it's 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 swearing on on topic. Um, 
but uh yeah we went we went, i went to the previous meeting was in Reykjavik in iceland and um we found a bar not far from the venue called bar bastard so we all went there obviously <laughs> that's funny what <laughs> are you expecting from the, so who hosts this conference So uh, it, it's myself at Keel. It's Christy uh, Biz Bagaston, who is from she she's she's a a lead of an organization called Swiska, which stands for Swearing in Scandinavia, and they've been running. This is their eighth. This is going to be their eighth conference. They sort of broken out of Scandinavia over to the UK, and then there's also a group of UK um, academics who call themselves. And see if you can work this out. The Consortium for Research about Profanity, uh, and that's um, led by Ollie Robertson, who was my PhD student. Um, she graduated, she got a PhD uh, very recently, and she kind of fronts that up. So it's a joint. It's a jointly organised by those two. Uh, those two kind of academic organisations. Plus, we've got bits of sponsorship. I'll tell you who our sponsors are. So to the website, um, uh, we've got some sponsorship from the British Psychological Society, who are hosting a seminar. We've got sponsorship from um, the Magnus Bergvall Foundation, uh, which is uh, a Swedish organisation, and also from my own uh, Keele University School of Psychology. Hmm. And so what are your kind of expectations and Do they have like a vision every year for what they want from the conference? Um, it's a not not so much a vision as per se. You know, swearing is still uh, a very young area for academic study. You know, as I say, when I first got interested in it, there were there were very well there were there was no organizations. I didn't know any other swearing academics. So it's all about networking. It's all about Seeing what ideas people have got, and it and it's starting to build the research base and identify the interesting questions. Um, you know, together we're stronger. Um, it's 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 finding interesting questions and getting the getting them out there. Mm. And so to wrap this up, my final question for you is: if you were to put together all the things that you've learned as a, you know, as a lecturer, as all that you've done so far in your career, if you had to pass down one gem of wisdom, what would it be? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I some, I think I'm going to say something like have standards. Do when you're doing something, do a good job. Have standards. Make sure you make sure you know what you're doing is meaningful, and you know it. It, it and is good. For its own sake, find find things. You went. I'm starting to ramble a bit now, but you know, find things, find find activities or interests or research areas or whatever it is that are self fulfilling and interesting for their own sake, and do a good job. Mm. That's great. Well, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I really. I had a great conversation. I love talking about swearing. I mean, it's very, I feel like it is a very taboo topic and it's just kind of, it's nice to break that barrier, I think. And to have the the shroud of academia to cover it, you know? 
Yeah, well, we're trying to not we're not covering it. We're trying to uncover it, really. Uncover it. You know, it's not it's not so much the shroud of academia, but the uh, the shining light of academia. <laughs> I'd, I'd I'd like to think. Um, but yeah, no, it's, thanks, Calvin. It's been lovely to meet you, and it's been great. You've asked me some really thought provoking questions, actually. So I've enjoyed I've enjoyed our conversation. So yeah, thanks very much for your interest. And that brings us to the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you again for listening and making this process so much more enjoyable. If you haven't had the chance to already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts to get the latest updates on new episodes. If you've been learning useful information here, feel free to leave a review as well. A little bit goes a long way in spreading this podcast. And have a wonderful day. And as per usual, stay re-educated.